Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you, you listen to podcasts, really as well as at Bloomberg.com. As the economies begin to reopen, is going out to restaurants and bars and actually interacting with people. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business. He's got a column out, Lisa, that discusses the grim American bar scene and why many of them may not even uh, survive this pandemic. Barry, thanks so much for joining us here. Kind of, What did you learn uh, as you uh, chatted with the host of Bar Rescue? So a couple of things. First, um, you know, it is grim. And, and what first got me focused on exactly how grim it was, was before I spoke to John Taffer, I spoke to Pat LaFrieda of LaFrieda Meat Purveyor. You might know that name because they created the original Shake Shack Burger and they're a supplier to restaurants like Peter Luger's and all the high-end steak places. And LaFrieda told us that Half of the restaurants he supplies to are not doing takeout or curbside service. And of those who are, they're running between 25 and 30% of their normal volume. So already we see the restaurant industry is, is going to be in trouble because they're just not seeing the sort of revenues they were previously. Um, Taffer takes it a step further, and, and he says it is so expensive to reopen after you're closed for three months Think about it. Everything in your refrigerator has been thrown out. Mm. You have no inventory. You have to get some line of credit just to stock up the refrigerator. And that's what led him to say 40% of the bars and restaurants are very likely to not make it through this whole crisis. And he's not alone in those kinds of estimates. There are a lot of estimates coming out. This has been one of, if not the most hard hit sector. And it's hard to see how it's going to emerge that quickly. I'm wondering what the restaurant of the future looks like. Is this going to permanently change the concept of dining out to a more takeout model, kits that you can cook at home, that type of transition just to be more resilient through all types of waves of the economy? You know, I, I kind of divide the world into the pre- and post-vaccine eras. And, and once we have a treatment and a vaccine so people are comfortable, uh, look, there's a reason why restaurants were and bars were as popular as they were pre-crisis. Humans are social animals. We like to go out. We like to break bread together, drink together, socialize. I just can't imagine a future where... Bars and restaurants have a six-foot social distancing, and you're not sitting um, in a loud, crowded, busy room. But I don't with a piece of plexiglass until... between you and anybody else, <laughs> right. try to ask somebody I mean... else out on a date with plexiglass <laughs> right. in between you. Right, that's kind of unlikely. But but that said, you know, a little context also helps. Restaurants and bars are a notoriously challenging business in the first place. They have razor-thin margins, a lot of uh, built-in costs. The restaurants that I expect are going to hang around uh, very often, at least outside of the city, are the ones that physically own their space. Mm -hmm. So rent isn't an issue. They're probably not even, if they've been around long enough, they're probably not even paying a mortgage. They just have their property tax. That's a very different scenario than someone at a busy intersection corner in Manhattan 
paying big giant rent to some big um, uh, skyscraper owned by one of the big REITs, that's a very different situation. And you don't know how those, you know, how on earth can those companies come out of three, four, five months of a fraction of their revenue, but 100% of their costs? Barry, I want to shift gears a little bit. I know you recently interviewed uh, one of my favorite authors, Michael Lewis, author of Liar's Poker, which was just such a fun book back in the day. Uh, you know, you, the, I guess the conclusion was uh, an article, the U.S. under Trump is like a team without a coach, uh, was one of your recent columns. What did Michael Lewis mean about that? So uh, two really interesting projects he is working on, both kind of connected in the same place. The first is the book he wrote right after the election called The Fifth Risk. And it focuses on Governor Chris Christie, who was head of the Trump transition team. It's actually law that once you become a major party nominee, you have to put together lists of all these people um, who are going to be able to slot into important um, positions within the government. You don't want to allow that transition period to put the country at risk, either in terms of national security or defense or anything like that. And you also want to facilitate everybody hitting the ground running pretty quickly. That executive transition of power should be smooth and flawless. And to everybody's shock, the day after he won the election, Trump fired the entire transition team and basically <laughs> threw away four months of uh, work. And, and in the book, The Fifth Risk, uh, Lewis talks about you know, the, the problem with not having experts in, in their various roles uh, at places like the National Institute of Health or the Center for Disease Control is that if something happens, well, we're not prepared for it. And it turned out that the book was very prescient, given what's been going on with COVID-19. Uh, now, yeah. hold that aside, because that was 2017. Last year, uh, in, in 2019, he started a podcast called yeah. Against the Rules, and he looks at different aspects of sports and life and where All they right. oversect. Barry, we're going to have to leave it there. We'll have you back on to talk more about that. That's Barry Ridholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, also founder and chair of the Ridholtz Wealth Management Group. Well, over the past several days, President Donald Trump has been raging against Twitter since a social media platform that helped vault him to the presidency slapped a fact-checked links on a pair of his tweets to get a sense of what this really means for Twitter and free speech. We welcome Cass Sunstein. Cass is uh, a Bloomberg opinion columnist, a Harvard Law professor, and the author of a new book entitled Too Much Information, which will be out this July from MIT Press. Professor, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your thoughts here of what's really happening here between Twitter and President Trump. What's really at the, at the foundation of what's going on here? Uh, the foundation is, has nothing to do with President Trump. The foundation is that Twitter adopted a policy after, I'm sure, a lot of internal discussions that isn't about Vice President Biden or President Trump or about a famous scientist. It just says that if there are misleading claims on its platform, it's going to respond generally in a very gentle way by having a label that said, uh, get the facts here with a link. So if you post on Twitter saying, you know, the more cigarettes, the less cancer, everyone should smoke to ensure that they uh, live forever, 
uh, Twitter's policy would say, get the facts here. And that's uh, been applied now to the president, and it's just an application of a policy they adopted. Well, uh, Professor uh, Sunstein, I'm wondering, though, consistency has been an issue for Twitter in terms of other tweets that President Trump and others have put out there that perhaps they haven't fact-checked as much, and some people saying, why now? Why this one? Can you give us a sense of the legal standard in following some sort of understandable protocol in when they interfere and when they don't, and how that might come to hurt Twitter, actually, going forward? Okay, well, the fundamental background fact is that Twitter isn't governed by the U.S. Constitution. So if Twitter said we're only going to have uh, Republicans on our platform or only Democrats or only things that take a certain stand on immigration, that would raise no constitutional question. Uh, It appears that there aren't statutory restrictions either, though that's not 100% clear, meaning Twitter has a lot of room as the law now stands to run its platform as it sees fit. Uh, so the legal question isn't um, uh, very lively right now. It might become livelier eventually, but basically that's not the main concern. Uh, Twitter's policy of uh, putting on labels and warnings is relatively new. Um, most of President Trump's tweets don't have factual errors. President Trump's critics complain of those that do, but the majority don't. And that's true of anyone who's regularly on Twitter. I hope that's probably an overstatement. Most yes. people on Twitter don't mostly have factual errors. Uh, so uh, given the volume of factual errors on Twitter, just like given the volume of people who are shoplifters, Uh, the enforcement authorities aren't going to be able to respond 100% of the time. Uh, Here, the, the, the correction, what's called the label, that's more precise, involved uh, a claim about uh, uh, voter fraud being rampant where you have mail-in ballots. And evidently that's, that's misleading. Uh, Twitter didn't even say, by the way, it was misleading. It said it's potentially misleading. And Twitter didn't say it was false. That would have been fair to say. It said it's potentially misleading, and therefore we'll put our uh, response in. And that's, that's completely fair to do. Professor, there's also another legal question here, and that is freedom of speech. And it's one that's been invoked by President Trump. And it's also been invoked uh, by others who say freedom of press is part of the issue, too, uh, with respect to Twitter. What freedom should we be thinking of when we frame this issue legally? Well, if, um, let's say, the Wall Street Journal decided to have an editorial policy of a certain kind. The First Amendment doesn't play in at all. If Facebook decides that its news feed is going to go in a certain direction, there's there's no constitutional issue and there's probably no legal issue. That is that the Constitution is really important to see applies only to government. And that's part of freedom, by the way. Uh, If you want to say or do certain things, the Constitution doesn't apply to you. The one exception, which is an interesting one, is if you enslave someone, then the Constitution kicks in. Uh, As a cultural matter, Twitter, though it's relatively new, uh, its business model and its success, really, and its legitimacy depend on being a kind of free-for-all. And that, that's not a legal uh, uh, idea. It's just a, a business idea. Like, you know, uh, uh, Reddit or YouTube, they have a, a, a lot of stuff on them. 
And that's probably very good. And certainly in the case of YouTube and Twitter, it's part of what makes them as, you know, positive as they often, not always, as positive as they often are. And that means that Twitter should, if it's to provide the public service it's providing, tread very lightly on freedom of speech. And what we had was so light, it's kind of astounding to see the flare-up on the part of the White House. Facebook, uh, Twitter didn't even say it was false. It just said, get the facts on. And uh, seeing it, you could think the facts are going to be exactly what the president said. So, President, uh, it's interesting, you know, Professor, when we think about President Trump, one of the questions is simply as it relates to some of these social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter, it, are they – are these Facebooks and Twitters of the world, are they media companies or are they merely platforms for people to put their own thoughts on? Uh, they are platforms. That's technically what they are. I do think President Trump is correct in uh, exploring exactly what they're doing and what kind of legal authorizations they should have to do what they're doing. So if uh, a newspaper has certain kinds of material, let's say libel or child abuse, uh, they can be subject potentially to a lawsuit. There's a law called Section 230 uh, that exempts the, the, the social media providers from liability for things for which newspapers and magazines and television stations would be liable, uh, at least to ponder the reach of two Section 230. So back in 1996, I think that is, that is fair. So ultimately, what's your opinion on what of Twitter's kind of solution here, if you will, to President Trump and others? Well, I think Twitter's general approach here is extremely reasonable and very soft, which is to say that, you know, they're going to say get the facts if they detect something that's misleading. And and the place they point people to should be, you know, fair enough, and it looks like it's fair enough here. Um, it's completely fair to say, why did you go after me and not someone else? And yep. it's completely fair to say I was right on this one. I wasn't misleading. But that's that's part of uh, public discussion. It's not part, it shouldn't be part of threats. Professor Cass Sunstein, a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. Professor Sunstein is of Harvard Law School, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist and author of the new book, Too Much Information, which will be out this July from MIT Press. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We got some data, as Greg was mentioning today, showing a devastating picture for unemployment. Some green shoots there if you want to take it for the optimistic side of things, but still highlighting an unemployment rate that's likely to climb to 20% in May. The question, why are equities rallying? Joining us now, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes uh, with $89 billion in equity investments under management. Phil, what's your take here? especially given the fact that we've seen this ongoing rotation, perhaps not today, uh, but leading up to today, going into the cyclical stocks, how much traction does this rally have? So yeah, your, your lead in on the claims data was, is really a, a beacon of light on this whole issue. The, the, the pessimist, the, the glass half full person would say, well, we, we've got almost 41 million initial claims that have been filed over the last couple of months. That's absolutely horrific. And then the optimist, someone like me, says, yeah, but the claims have fallen from 6.9 million 
on March 28th to 2.1 million, uh, which was this morning's number. They've fallen by two-thirds and and 13% on a week-over-week basis. So the trajectory, I think, is what the equity market is looking at. So, so separate and apart from claims, you know, you mentioned green shoots at the very beginning. Oil prices, you know, have gone from $10 to $35. Confidence, Michigan Conference Board, the Small Business Optimism Index, better than expected. Several of the Fed indices, Empire, Philly Fed, Dallas, Richmond, better than expected. What I'm saying is the equity market as a forward-looking discounting mechanism is not looking at the horrific absolute nature of what the data is presenting today. They're saying, okay, the, 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 the infections, the mortalities peaked from a trajectory standpoint in early April, they're getting better. We're starting to slowly reopen the economy. So as we look out into the second half of this year, into the end of this year, the, the economy's open. We're out of the recession. We're starting to grow again. And that's what the market, in my view, is attempting to price in here. So, Phil, a lot of the medical experts have warned that we should be uh, expecting a second wave of uh, infections, perhaps in the fall and winter time. How do you think the markets in general will deal with that if that does, in fact, occur? Well, and, and, and that's why the, the, the progress that we've made from the healthcare community here over the last couple of months is so critically important. So you've got one drug company, Gilead, which has had their antiviral drug, remdesivir, approved by the FDA. You've got 100 different companies working on vaccines. You've got eight of them that are actually making some solid progress, and you've got three of them that appear to be a, a step ahead of everyone else, sort of in phase one to phase two clinicals right now, Moderna, Oxford University, and, and Novovax. The, the idea here is that given the pace that, that a handful of companies are making and the pressure, I think, that the FDA self-imposed feels to try to get something out there, we, we could have a vaccine by, by the end of this year. And, and so if you've got an antiviral drug and, and, and one or more vaccines, um, that potentially is going to blunt the, the, this dreaded second wave that we're trying to avoid. Now, the risk is that these antivirals crap out, that we don't get a medical response and that we do get the second wave. That's going to have a deleterious impact on the reopening of the economy, economic growth, and, and I would suggest stock market performance as well. What the market's pricing in now, I think, is the fact that we are making medical progress on this drug development. And the thinking is something is going gonna, is gonna to shake free by Thanksgiving. All right. So what do you, how are you positioning? We have maintained a 3% equity overweight uh, with a focus on uh, domestic large cap growth and domestic small cap. Uh, those areas have done pretty well here, led by healthcare and technology. One area that we've liked that hasn't participated up until now has been financials. Uh, but just in the last week or so, we're starting to get sort of a catch-up trade uh, that you folks have been talking about. You know, some of the more economically sensitive categories like financials, industrials, consumer discretionary, energy, etc. Uh, so we, we've been sticking with the with the growth and the quality, uh, but we're watching this catch-up trade pretty closely. 
what would it take for you to change that view, especially given the fact that the vaccine scenario that people are expecting and that Anthony Fauci sort of raised the specter of yesterday that it could be approved, something could be approved by the end of this year, has been called into the question by the likes of the Merck CEO who came out and said, this seems really ambitious to us. Well, and I think that's exactly the point. If, if we do not make the medical progress that we think we're going to make on the vaccine front and as a result end up with this disastrous second wave, which forces us to shut the economy down again and extend the recession, which we think is contained to the first half through the back half of the year, that's not in our expectations. We think the because of the reopening that's going on, we're going to have positive third quarter growth over second quarter, positive corporate earnings in the third quarter versus the second quarter. That's our base case. So if, if, if those things don't happen, if the economy gets shut down because of this second wave, because we don't make the progress on the drug development that we think we're making, then that's going to cause us to go back to the drawing board. Phil, just real quickly, what do you make of China here that looks like the tensions really are kind of starting to ramp up here? Well, I, you know, I, I'm not a China expert, but my best guess is that uh, perhaps President Xi is trying to direct uh, global focus on the role that the Chinese had with the coronavirus. It, it now appears that, that they knew about this as far back as maybe October and November of last year and kept it quiet until the end of January. Uh, th- that's obviously uh, unsettling if that's true. Uh, and so perhaps to take the focus off that, uh, you, 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 you shift over to this Hong Kong situation, which is equally troubling uh, and, and, you know, as a result, we're watching Hong Kong right now rather than, you know, uh, assigning right. blame to who knew what when. Hey, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. We always love having you on Getting Your Perspective. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. Uh, they have about $89 billion in equities under management. Uh, joining us on the phone, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. So, Lisa, it's interesting here. Phil continues to keep, uh, I think, what we've you know, long uh, seen from Phil is kind of a, a positive bias to the market here. Uh, and he's certainly been right coming off uh, that bottom, just this great rally uh, coming off of the bottom. And I think the market's starting to discount, um, you know, a reopening of economies and, of course, accommodative central banks around the world pushing this market higher. <music> Tensions have been rising between the U.S. and China. Hong Kong at the very forefront of that with China imposing, passing rules to impose some new security rules on Hong Kong, basically being viewed by the U.S. as stripping that region of its autonomy. Here with us now, Christopher Balding, Associate Professor at Fulbright University in Vietnam and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Chris, I want to start with Hong Kong and its economic position relative to China. How much of an economic hit would it be to Beijing if the United States were to revoke that special trading status with Hong Kong? Um, In some ways, it wouldn't be that big uh, of an issue, uh, even though they're thinking of raising uh, the tariffs to match um, not the Hong Kong level, but the China level. Um, there's not a whole lot of manufacturing that takes place in Hong Kong anymore. It's basically a service economy. Um, it's a big shipping port. Lots of, uh, lots of uh, trade goes through Hong Kong before arriving in China, um, which changes the designation of products. Um, 
But overall, uh, the, the real economic impact uh, is not where the primary pain would be felt. Um, there's some legislation right now that would basically uh, begin to crimp U.S. dollar access uh, in different ways to uh, to Hong Kong and Chinese firms um, and entities uh, seeking uh, U.S. dollar funding. That is where the real pain uh, would come in, and especially if there was a move, for instance, from uh, by firms to escape PRC uh, leg- uh, legal status and move to places like Singapore. Um, where there would be much greater confidence in contract enforcement and things like that. So that is where the real pain would be felt, not in the direct economic impact. Chris, give us a sense of why China is asserting its authority now. Is there anything specific about this timing here? Um, I think the the best theory on that specifically is that they realize um, that to, let's say, try and assert control over Hong Kong uh, more more uh, strongly uh, the way that they were doing last year uh, simply wasn't working. So this is essentially uh, the legal version of rolling in a tank into Hong Kong. Um, and I think at this point, I think a lot of Hong Kongers, I think that the, set, the mood seems to be a little bit more resigned to their fate, uh, that they're not going to be able to stop this. Um, and I think one of the things you're hearing from from different people I know is um, is basically it's time it's it's time to move on it's time to consider leaving Hong Kong. And I've heard that too from a number of companies that are looking at Singapore, like you said, and trying to make plans sooner rather than later. I want to go back to something that you were saying about the dollar funding pressures that could be foisted upon Beijing due to some of the U.S. moves against Hong Kong. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I do not think that that's being priced into the market or even talked about much among analysts. Sure. So there's 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 a couple of uh, specific uh, issues. So, for instance, um, some of the legislation uh, that is that is currently uh, in the House that's already passed the Senate, um, it specifically targets um, 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 companies or individuals in Hong Kong uh, or the, in the banks that deal with them and providing uh, dollar access and, and other financial services to them. So depending on how broadly uh, a lawyer or a regulator wanted to interpret statutes like that, one could quite plausibly um, assume that this would in- include some of the largest Chinese companies and some of the uh, largest Chinese banks uh, would, would be wrapped up in this. And so this would prevent uh, U.S. banks and, and other banks from potentially servicing those, those clients. Um, one of the areas where you've seen this a lot, uh, you saw this a, a lot before Corona was, and, and in 2019, is there was a lot of uh, U.S. dollar raising by Chinese banks that need to raise capital. Um, we, we saw just recently that uh, the bank capital in Chinese banks has declined uh, to a long-term uh, low. It's now just above 9% and it's continuing to, uh, to decline. Um, that's a real problem. They need large amounts of, of funding, and a lot of that is, is coming via um, secondary offerings and in various uh, convertibles um, in Hong Kong. So if, if they cannot raise U.S. dollar funding because of sanctions or, or new legislation, um, that could cause real, real problems. So, Chris, just about 30 seconds, give us a sense of, is there any recourse for the people of Hong Kong here, or is this kind of a fait accompli? To be quite frank, unfortunately, um, there does not seem to be a lot of recourse uh, with regards to China. Um, China seems to have made the decision that this is what they're going to do in Hong Kong. 
Um, and barring, uh, you know, significant violence, uh, at which point uh, the PRC seems uh, focused on uh, ramping up and, uh, and bringing in significant uh, police or potential military support, um, there does not seem to be a lot that, uh, that the Hong Kong people or Hong Kong government can do. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Christopher Balding, associate professor at the Fulbright University of Vietnam, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist, talking about the developments in Hong Kong as China asserting ever more control over Hong Kong. Um, it seems to be uh, kind of a trend here, and it doesn't seem to be, according uh, to Professor Balding, you know, much that Hong Kong can do here. So, but certainly ratcheting up the tensions uh, between the U.S. and China. Uh, so we'll have to see how this plays out. But again, the China-U.S. trade uh, war is still in uh, out there and still for something for investors to consider, but also, you know, the overall trade, very difficult between the two countries. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.